Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Hussein Haqqani, a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute and the director of our South Asia and Central Asia program. Uh, it's a pleasure for me uh, today uh, to welcome you uh, to this event uh, at which we will be hearing from Carlotta Gall, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning um, reporter of the New York Times who spent almost a decade in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Now, I have known her throughout that period and I can say one thing, that she has been an extremely intrepid and very uh, sort of meticulous reporter throughout that period. Uh, the book that we are discussing today is her book, uh, The Wrong Enemy, America in Afghanistan, 2001 to 2014. Uh, and of course, uh, you have probably read the reviews of the book, and you've also heard about some of the controversy that has been generated, especially in Pakistan, which is my home country, uh, about this book. Uh, now, um, of course, as a Pakistani, uh, I share the angst of my countrymen uh, who get very worried wherever they are, whether they are in Washington, D.C., or Manila, or Dubai, or Kuwait, and they pick up a newspaper and they feel our country is being criticized. Uh, there are Pakistanis who uh, get very sentimental and say, you know what, we are the world's biggest victims of terrorism. The largest number of people who have been killed by terrorism are in Pakistan. Then when it comes to the relationship with the West, Pakistanis get angry over the fact that Pakistan was an ally of the United States during the Cold War, uh, and they feel that the United States has not treated Pakistan well enough. I, by the way, have written an entire book on that subject as well, which is also available these days, uh, uh, in, case, in case somebody wants to buy both of them at the same time. <laughs> Although Carlotta's book, The Wrong Enemy, is available, is going to be available here, and she will, after this event, assign it for you. So going back to how Pakistanis feel, Pakistanis often uh, get very reactive. They get very upset. They think everybody's criticizing us too much. There's more to Pakistan than just terrorism. There's more to Pakistan than the fact that bin Laden was found there. And the, all of those points are true. And I see several Pakistani faces in the audience, and I'm sure they all know what I'm talking about, the sentiment of Pakistanis, especially of the wonderful Pakistanis who live in the United States who get upset uh, over what they perceive to be criticism of Pakistan. But at the same time, <clears throat> it's important to see where all this criticism is coming from. The rest of the world cannot understand why Dr. A.Q. Khan, a nuclear pro pro proliferator who sold Pakistan's nuclear secrets to third countries, should not have been punished. The world does not understand why Hafiz Saeed, a uh, known and recognized international terrorist, operates openly uh, from Lahore and holds rallies, goes on television, and is admired as a kind of a hero. The world does not understand uh, whether uh, people like General Hamid Gul and General Asad Durrani, who are former heads of ISI, and General Aslam Beg, who is a former chief of the army, uh, when they speak in favor of bin Laden and, uh, and, and, and speak admiringly of terrorists, whether those sentiments are still present in Pakistan's military or not. Uh, people. To this day, almost, and I was ambassador of Pakistan at that time, um, I know to this day a lot of Americans are still struck by the fact that Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan in a town that is primarily a garrison town. Uh, and so, from the point of view of Pakistanis, um, it is an interesting question. Uh, nobody wants Pakistan to be perceived as America's enemy. Uh, the title of Carlotta's book seems to suggest as President Obama did, by the way, during his first election campaign, 
that America's interests, primary interests, were not in Afghanistan, but to the east of Afghanistan, and that most of America's concerns about security emanated not from Afghanistan, but from the east of Afghanistan. And I think Carlotta, based on her reporting, has put together a very interesting narrative. Now people can agree with it, people can disagree with it. But especially to the Pakistanis in this audience who I have a fear, who I'm fearful will clog the question and answers particularly, uh, I would like to say to them that there is a poem by Robert Burns which goes something like this, that may some power the gift give us to see ourselves as others see us. And as a Pakistani, that is the reason why I am quite happy to have Carlotta Gall as our guest today. To comment on Carlotta's presentation, we have a very able Pakistani commentator, Dr. Muhammad Taki. Uh, Dr. Taki uh, is, uh, lives in Florida. Uh, he is from Pakistan. He's a columnist in the Pakistani newspaper, the Daily Times, and also contributes uh, to uh, many international publications. Uh, although he's a medical doctor, I think he also knows how to feel the pulse of Pakistan and at the same time recognize the various infections running in the veins there. Uh, so we will definitely hear from him as well. But first, Carlotta. Thank you very much. Good, morning, good afternoon. Um, I'm now actually the, the New York Times North Africa correspondent. I'm based in Tunisia. Um, so I've moved on since I've finished the book. Um, and I came across something the other day that, that made me, that helped me explain why I wrote this book. I was traveling in southern Afghanistan with a young Tunisian uh, reporter who, at age 23, uh, was, took part in the revolution. Uh, so he was only 20. He was on the streets when the uprising happened and they overthrew the dictator, Ben Ali. And he said to me, you know, one thing that started it all, and he said it was a WikiLeaks cable that came out a couple of years before the uprising, and if I remember the dates right, and he said it, it was an American diplomatic cable writing about Ben Ali and criticizing the dictator, criticizing the corruption and, and the way he ran the country. And, and he said that was an eye-opener for us we, because we suddenly realized that America didn't support this man and suddenly there was a sort of window opened and um, it made us <coughs> realize that he wasn't invincible because America didn't even support him. So I, I think I'm, it made me think that's partly why I wrote this book. It's, it's just to open a window and, and put the ideas out there. Um, I'm just a journalist, so I'm writing what I've seen on the ground over, in fact, it's been 12 years now reporting from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And I don't have any policy um, agenda, and I don't have any real ideas for the way forward. But I do want to say this is how I saw it on the ground. And I think it's very important to keep reminding us what is happening on the ground. Um, so the, there were two things, really, that, that drove the book. Um, really, <coughs> to, to give the Afghans a voice. Because um, when you're reporting, um, you see so many things happening in a war that um, people can't, uh, people are the victims and they can't speak for themselves about it. So I really did want to, to give the Afghans a voice and show what was happening on the ground. So there's, there's whole chapters about civilian casualties, uh, you know, uh, that 
committed in the war, the American bombing, the wrongful arrest of detainees, uh, some things that, that really shouldn't have happened that did um, for, for various reasons of, of uh, you know, failure to understand the culture and the people, um, and then a, a, a strategy of continuing to pursue um, the, the enemy, the perceived enemy in Afghan villages, when in fact a lot of them were innocents. And it, it got me thinking, um, because every time you went to a bomb site or um, the, the, a battlefield, you came across people who said, why are the Americans fighting us here? Why are they bombing our houses when the real cause of the problem is across the border? And of course, we all knew that after 9-11, after when the American intervention overturned this Taliban government, the Taliban leaders and, <coughs> and, and commanders and al-Qaeda uh, elements and foreign fighters all fled across the border into Pakistan. We all knew that, everybody who was there on the ground, the journalists, the, the soldiers who were fighting there, the diplomats knew that too. And then, of course, they were left to their own devices. And the, the, the fighting continued in Afghanistan. But the source, the, the leadership, the structures that kept the insurgency going all these years was over the border in Pakistan. Um, so that was something that just became a continual plea from the Afghans. Why is America not going to the source of the problem? And you probably all know that President Karzai would repeat that for years and, and, and become increasingly frustrated uh, as he felt he wasn't listened to. Uh, the second reason that I wrote the book was um, to give voice to the Pakistani journalists, especially. Afghan journalists have been free this last decade under the Americans. You know, they have some difficulty. They do now have threats from Taliban. But it really became clear over the years that the Pakistani journalists were under extreme pressure and, and intimidation and control. And I came up against it personally in 2006 when I was in Quetta in Pakistan, uh, trying to find Taliban members to interview in Quetta. I was also tra tracking families of suicide bombers who had died in Afghanistan in suicide bomb attacks. And we started to find out that the, the boys who were doing it, they're often young teenagers, were coming from Pakistan. And I wanted to find the families and see how they were getting sucked into this and why. And I was horrified to find that the families often didn't know where their sons had gone. They, they'd been in madrasas studying somewhere, and then they'd been taken away for training. And then they, the next thing they knew, they were getting a phone call to say, hold a fateha, your son's shaheed, which is just mind-boggling, because they had no idea it was coming. But secondly, they were terrified to talk about it. Um, and they did, because they were Pashtun, they would often you know, be very hospitable, so they would let me in to their, their houses, and they would talk, but they were frightened. And I started to see that there was, there was something much more sinister. Every family that I visited in those few days was then visited by intelli Pakistani intelligence officials. Um, and we went back to one woman, and she said, please go away, because they've come to me, and they said, I should never talk to you again. So there was, there was this climate, and I started to, to talk about it a bit more, and I s understood from Pakistani journalist colleagues that the pressure was extreme. They often expected to get picked up 
often when they were on their own in the street or in their car, they would get bundled into a car, they would get taken away for several days, they would be held somewhere, interrogated, often beaten, often worse, strung up, uh, sexually assaulted, threatened about their families. You know, they'd be told, we know the route your little girl takes on the way to school. She could easily have, you know, an accident. Some really nasty things. And then they would be released and told, stop writing what you're writing. Don't work with foreign journalists often. And don't talk about this. Don't ever tell anyone where you've just been the last few days. So there was this silence about it. But gradually, of course, reporters would tell you what happened. And of course, usually they change their ways. They stop reporting the difficult things, the sensitive things. Um, and I started to understand Pakistani journalists know a lot more than they're writing. And I, I have a, a line in the book that I think if they'd had freedom, Pakistani journalists would have found Mullah Amar and found Osama bin Laden way before the Americans did, uh, because they, they're, they're very capable. They're just, they're just intimidated and scared. So I hope to give some voice to some of the things that m my Pakistani colleagues have told me. And some of them have urged me to report this because they feel their hands are tied. So it's in that spirit that, that I wrote this, not to, not to denigrate Pakistan. It's a country I love and respect, but to give some voice to some very important issues that I think are not getting aired inside Pakistan as they should. Um, just briefly, uh, because I don't want to run on, tell me if I'm running on, but I chose the wrong enemy for, for the reason I touched on of the Afghan villages. It's a, it's a quote from something Richard Holbrook said. He was the uh, special envoy for Afghanistan, Pakistan um, under the Obama administration until his untimely death. And he said to, he said actually to David Miliband, the foreign, British foreign secretary at one point, that means they were having a discussion about the Taliban, and he said that, that may mean that we're fighting the wrong enemy in the wrong country. In other words, the, all the effort, the military offensives, the surge even against uh, Afghan Taliban in Afghan villages was uh, tackling the symptoms of the disease <coughs> when the source of the problem was across the border in, in the training camps, in Fatah, in, in the madrasas, and uh, meeting places of the Quetta Shura in, in Quetta and, and, other, and, and often in Peshawar. And perhaps, I will say it, in the headquarters of the ISI, which has managed, I believe, this whole campaign uh, very cleverly, uh, using a proxy force in a way that's deniable. But they, um, as I uncovered time and again, their hands were in everything that, that was coming out of, of Pakistan through this last decade. Um, and then finally, well, maybe I'll stop there, shall I? Or, yeah. um, Feel free. <laughs> well, finally, um, I come, may, many of you may have seen the Sunday Times uh, magazine extracts of my book, which is, covers the Bin Laden um, uh, safe haven, if you want. He was obviously, you all know, discovered to be living in Abbottabad in May 2011 when the American Special Operations Forces raided his house and killed him and, and his son and, and his partners. But um, what it opened up for us as journalists is it revealed, my God, there he was all this time, living quite a, a normal, if, if secret, life um, in a Pakistani town. But it, it, it then 
opened up for me a, another several years of investigation as to, so who was hiding him? How, who knew? How did he manage to stay um, so well cloistered there? And um, in the course of my investigations, and I, I, I talk about it at length in a, in a chapter of, of how safe houses work, how the ISI works m managing people, um, how they, um, they keep the police away, they scare the journalists, they scare any questions away. So they have an ability in Pakistan society to hide someone like this in, in plain sight, if you were. But what I found most alarmingly at the end was a, a, an inside source that actually told me, yes, the ISI did have, the Pakistani intelligence did have a special desk and they were actually running. They not only knew Bin Laden was there, but they placed him, they were protecting him, um, and they were managing him. Um, and we can talk about a bit about the motivations as to why, but I, I, I put that in there. It's a single source piece of information, but I don't put it lightly. I, it, it's come after 12 years of work. Um, it, m it makes sense with everything that <coughs> I know um, I've checked it against other people who can't necessarily confirm it, but say that makes sense. We'd worked out something similar. The, the American CIA people who were watching the house for nearly a year had come to the same conclusions that there was no, for example, no back door, no tunnel, no way for bin Laden to escape if there was a raid. And they calculated, therefore, that he was always expecting and planning to be forewarned if there was any danger. And that to them meant Pakistan, someone in Pakistan was going to tip him off if, if a raid was going to come down. And for that reason, they did not um, collaborate with Pakistan on the raid. They kept it secret. And as you all know, uh, America did it as a unilateral action uh, going in without warning the Pakistani authorities. Um, so I, I, put, I put out my, my pieces of information um, for you to to judge yourselves. I'm not being dogmatic, but I, I do say that I'm, I, I've tried very hard to only use sources that I have are proven, who I really trust, who I've often worked with for years. Um, and, and so I'm offering it up as this is my best effort, and I really think this is, this is how it is. Uh, so with that, I think I'll pass on. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Of course, there are a lot of questions that come out of it, and there's a couple that I will <coughs> pose to you after uh, Dr. Thaki has made his comments. So Dr. Muhammad Thaki. <coughs> Thank you very much, Ambassador Haqqani. Glad to be on the panel with you, Carlotta. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I see some Afghans and Pashtuns. Khosh Ahmadiyan Pakhair Tasso. This is um, important to me. Um, Carlotta's work because it is very personal. I don't come here as a, as a uh, just a commentator or a columnist for Daily Times, but I grew up in Peshawar when uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, Abdullah Azam, Osama bin Laden, uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani, uh, Gulbuddin Hikmatyar, they were all camped out in my hometown. Uh, I remember the day when Abdullah Azam was blown up. I remember the day when uh, Burhanuddin uh, Bahauddin Majru was blown up. Uh, and these were all the people uh, who had a thoroughfare uh, through my hometown. My hometown stands ruined, as does uh, my home province and uh, the larger Afghanistan. So I come to you as a witness to history. Uh, and as Carlotta has mentioned in her book, that it is, uh, she has tried to preserve an initial first draft of history. 
uh, and I would like to comment on that, if I may. Uh, you already mentioned um, Ambassador Holbrook's comment, and I think he was on the dot. Uh, Lord did not give him enough time to actually pursue some of that. The fight that we have we have seen all along in this, and I talk about the AFPAC hyphenation and. In this book, Carlotta has actually tried to stay away from the hyphenation. Uh, and as politically incorrect as it sounds, uh, if you see the 10 provinces of Afghanistan that border Pakistan are the one where all the ruckus is, this is an area where, where the problem starts. This is an area which keeps the gel, uh, keeps, keep, it serves as a gel between the three prongs of the Afghan insurgency. Uh, this is the uh, the, the Vipers Pit, uh, the North Waziristan, where the Haqqani network is based. And everyone knows that an agreement exists between the Haqqani network uh, going back 2006, and uh, in which there is at least a, a peaceful coexistence between the Pakistani security establishment and the insurgents which bombed going all the way out from here to Kabul. And this is the prong, probably the strongest and most lethal prong of the Afghan insurgency. And then you have the Quetta Shura, uh, which you have talked about. Uh, and then up north, we keep hearing about uh, Kunar and uh, up further Nuristan and those areas where the Gulbuddin Hikmatyar's uh, group is operating uh, by and large. Again, uh, you know why it is only along this border? You have to ask, and as, as physicians, uh, we nailed the diagnosis uh, by taking a good detailed history almost 60% of the time. So if you knew the history of what has been going on, uh, you would be able to actually come to the conclusions there. Jalaluddin Haqqani did not come to this area after the Soviets rolled in. He actually had a camp out in Miramshah uh, for the longest time, way before the Soviets were there. In 1979, he was chosen as the uh, head uh, actually before the U.S. involvement in the uh, Afghanistan war in Miramshah. Uh, he runs a madrasa, uh, the Mamba ul-Ulum, uh, which means uh, the, the uh, fountainhead of uh, knowledge. And uh, the party organ is called the fountainhead of jihad, Mamba ul-Jihad, which all came out from uh, this region. So there is um, a very important reason that this hyphenation should stick. and. Uh, still should persist. Most of these uh, prongs of the Afghan insurgency, they are not just Afghan. They are Pakistan-Afghan insurgents, especially the Haqqani network. So and whenever you are uh, fighting a guerrilla warfare, basically the idea is that you have a Pakistan faucet which keeps pouring in all this into Afghanistan. You can try mopping up Afghanistan all you want, but unless the faucet has not been shut down, there is very little chance, uh, almost futile, that uh, there could be uh, a success out there. So this is where uh, Carlotta's uh, prescriptions uh, would come into picture, or at least the understanding uh, of what exactly is the mother load comes from across the Duran line, and she has shown time and again from the uh, original rise of the Taliban, and I was in Peshawar at the time in 1994 when they scored their first victory out of the blue, you certainly had these people uh, who were uh, sweeping Afghanistan like a whirlwind. And then suddenly you found out that uh, they were hooked to the telephone grid. The Kandahar was uh, uh, hooked to the Quetta telephone grid. 
uh, Khost was hooked to the Waziristan telephone grid and uh, Nangarhar province was uh, hooked to the Peshawar telephone grid. And at the time, on the eve of uh, 2001, uh, the Loya Paktia region was still hooked to the Pakistani telephone grid. The Pakistani security advisors like, uh, as she points out in her book, uh, Colonel Imam, the real name being Amir Sultan Tarar, uh, he was with uh, Mullah Omar at the time, and uh, so much so that even the Pakistanis were sort of flustered that what exactly was he doing there, and that's all in the book. And Musharraf had to call him back uh, up, lest he's caught there. So this is the genesis of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, 9-11, all had origins in that hapless region. So why does it matter now? Well, it, it does matter because there's a mindset that is pervasive. And uh, Afghanistan is a large country. Uh, you uh, have put in a lot of this place, this country, US has put in uh, tons in treasure and blood. And Afghans have put in uh, exponential amount of that. And all of that should not be allowed to go waste uh, just because there is a hegemon uh, neighboring Afghanistan. What happens in Kabul will not stay in Kabul. It did not. It did not before 1992. It did not. It spilled over, not into Pakistan, but we saw that uh, eventually here. Uh, the strands of 9-11 uh, go all the way back to that uh, death and destruction. Pakistan might be a suicidal state, but rest of the world, uh, us, we don't have a death wish. And someone actually needs to instill a fear of God uh, and uh, come up with a treatment plan. And I don't use this slide to impugn anyone, but this is the headline from one of the Pakistani papers. Pakistan keeps close eye on vote in its Afghan backyard. Excuse me. Excuse me. You know, look at the mindset. And a liberal paper saying, a country which has existed 200 years before you did, a country which was fairly at peace before you came along, a little unruly kid on the block, uh, and basically, that's where the problem lies. It is not just the Pakistani establishment, but uh, the indoctrination that has gone through for the last two, three generations. This is where, where we are stuck with. It is not your backyard, dude. Uh, you need to get the heck out of there. <laughs> Look at this. Another one. This is an opinion piece. A real nice gentleman writes a piece. Pakistan's Afghan burden? Pakistan's Afghan burden? Is, is that uh, where we... So this is the level of understanding that we are dealing with in Pakistan. And that's where you can help people to understand, get an insight into what is actually going wrong in that particular region. And this is exactly what the Afghans responded with. This is the universal symbol of the independence and resilience and the vote that Afghans gave. That was not just for democracy, plurality, <coughs> it was essentially they voted against the intruders. They came out in droves on that rainy day against all odds, against all the bomb threats and whatnot, because they're not, perhaps they wanted to elect uh, one or the other candidates, but more importantly, they wanted to keep the other pretenders to the Kabul throne outside. They wanted to keep them out. And what they are looking for, and uh, Carlotta mentions uh, wisely in that book, is that it's not necessarily the US or ISAF boots and the Afghan soil that are needed. But they really do not want to be abandoned. You know, assistance, training, support, civilian, military. 
a country which has 50 plus television channels right now. This is Afghanistan. This is not the Afghanistan of 1992 where you had one state-owned channel. This is not something, this wheel is not turning back no matter what anyone in the region or elsewhere wants. Afghans want peace and they want progress. So how do you help them? You help them with this, but above all, by stymieing the interference that comes from an, an unfortunate neighbor. Uh, I've, I've used an example from, from the biblical uh, terms, uh, the story of uh, Joseph and his brothers. Afghanan Megan Kid, Pakistan, it is just like the, the uh, uh, Joseph's brother, uh, brothers who threw him uh, into the well. That's kind of uh, the raw deal that the Afghans get at the hands of Pakistan. And uh, there's an old Persian saying which says, Chah kanra, chah darpesh. You know, you dig a well for me, you are going to fall in it someday. And this is exactly the blowback that the Pakistan is experiencing on that side. And one important part of the book that I wanted to highlight is the chaos policy that Pakistan has actually practiced in Afghanistan over the last 30, 40 years. You know, when, when chaos is the only solution, this is actually being practiced as, as a policy. Uh, they have not known anything better, or perhaps they have not tried to look for anything better. You know, if you were to look at different scenarios that they work with, it could be a strong Pakistan-allied Afghanistan. It could be a strong anti-Pakistan uh, Afghanistan, in their view, perceived a weak anti-Pakistan Afghanistan or a weak Pak-allied Afghanistan. This is what they want to settle for eventually if they can't get this. So this is where the chaos picture is coming into the picture. To keep the Afghanistan weak and even the proxies under their thumb to the extent that they control every single bit. Not, not just uh, what uh, President Karzai or, or his uh, entourage may do, but even what Mullah Omar and Mullah Baradar do. And to this effect, uh, this book documents in, in a series, uh, it's a decapitation campaign that Pakistan-sponsored uh, proxies have unleashed on Afghanistan for the longest time. No Afghan left behind, eliminated. Anyone who had tribal standing, political standing, religious standing, starting from Dr. Muhammad Najibullah, the PDPA leader, Ahmad Shah Massoud, that was the first suicide bombing that took place in Afghanistan. The two guys who actually perpetuate that, two Tunisians get a visa from the Pakistan embassy in uh, London, as the book mentions. They come to Pakistan, and it's not some kind of a subtle covert operation, but they fly in a very high-profile uh, visit to Kandahar and are received by the Taliban officials who already had their Pakistani security minders with them. This is something that could not have been lost on that. And I, I briefly wanted to touch about uh, Commander Abdul Haq, uh, who was uh, the strongman from uh, Nangarhar province. Abdul Haq uh, wanted to go into Afghanistan on the eve of uh, 2000, uh, 2001. And uh, the book mentions that he was unarmed. And there is, a, there is a reason that Abdul Haq was unarmed. This man was wounded 17 times, perhaps, in the Soviet war. He knew how to use arms. He was disarmed in Peshawar before he would take off on that journey. He, were, he was not allowed to leave Peshawar with arms. He went into Bajawar. He wanted to buy arms on the open market there. Abdul Haq was not allowed to buy arms in the tribal areas, which is a common customary thing happening. Everyone else can do that, but he was not allowed. Every village that he would go to, they would either deny sanctuary to him or they would refuse arms to him. So when he ended up in Nangarhar, 
he was tracked by uh, Mullah Abdul Sattar, Abdul Razak, uh, who was the interior minister. And this is the same guy, Mullah Abdul Razak, who has worked very closely with the Pakistani uh, security agencies. And by some accounts, at least by Ambassador Peter Thompson's accounts, he's the one who actually shot President Najibullah inside the Afghan palace. This is the same guy. So. Okay, we have a few more minutes for you, a couple of minutes. So if you okay, mind just re real quick to, you know, there is no difference between good or bad jihadis. They are always joint at the head. This is Hakimullah and this is Abu Dajana, who, who, who bombed the uh, power base Chapman. And we'll talk about plausible deniability and everything, but I really want to ask just one, one question here. You know, the case of uh, Nasiruddin Haqqani, uh, everyone is asking Carlotta about her sources. In this town, you know the biggest story that was broken that brought a government down was one source, unnamed source, the Watergate scandal. Uh, yes, there were questions asked, but if that had been shoved under the rug, uh, maybe there would not have been a whole Watergate scenario. So stories cannot be ignored. Yes, double sourcing, it is important. But I want to ask the Pakistani naysayers, why could you not discover this chap in Pakistani capital? He was killed in Pakistani capital. He's, he and his uncles stayed five miles from the presidential palace, from the GHQ, so on and so forth and nobody discovered it, either you are too lazy to go look for it or you are too scared. And I think it is probably a little bit of both. I'll stop here. Thank you very much. Now, uh, before I open this to the audience, I'm going to ask you two both a couple of questions. Yes. You know, what do you both say to the fact, uh, uh, not the fact, but the opinion of most Pakistani? You know, you're just engaging in Pakistan bashing, that this is all very fashionable and that everybody says Pakistan that Pakistan has real problems, uh, Pakistan has done its best in fighting terrorism, uh, basically its own concerns about India continues, continue to get ignored by the rest of the world, uh, the insurgencies inside Pakistan that are fermented from Afghan soil are ignored, um, and essentially <clears throat> you guys are just sort of taking the easy way out by blaming Pakistan. What do both of you say to it? Quick answers from both. Carlotta, you first. Um, I would say, you know, we're entitled to, to, to write what we think and we see is happening on the ground. But um, much more important, the, what Pakistan is doing is costing lives. People are dying, um, tens of thousands of Afghans, tens of thousands, if we believe the figures, of Pakistanis in their own country. So every journalist has a right, and I would say a duty, to write about this, whether it's palatable or not to the audience. Um, so I, I, that's how I see it. There's, there's, there's just no question that we should be looking at this if, if people are dying um, and, and if, if countries and their futures are, are at stake. Um, I'll leave it at that. Quick reply, Dr. Taki. Osama's body may have been drowned or uh, it may have sunk in the ocean, but the rot and the stench is still there. Did anyone actually answer uh, that? Pakistan itself suppressed its own inquiry report. Uh, yes, I, I hear someone in this town asked uh, Carlotta to release more sources. I demand, why, why not make that report public first, in which it does not rule out something more sinister than just the incompetence that uh, the Pakistanis have been pleading. 
uh, Osama found there, uh, every major Al-Qaeda leader found there, and then in the certain area where they were. Uh, have you guys ever pondered that uh, Mansera and Aptabad region, not a single terrorist attack in that particular region over the last 10 years, whereas hundreds of attacks in Peshawar and elsewhere. Something just does not add up. Okay, so we have an interesting book and two interesting presentations. The book is available. Uh, by the way, those of you who are on Twitter uh, and who are watching this online, uh, the event is being tweeted live with the hashtag, the wrong enemy. And I hope that some of you will get the book and get Carlotta to sign it. Um, as I said in my opening remarks, the purpose of this event is to try and open up a discussion. Uh, and I am quite happy to take questions from the audience uh, to try and open up the discussion further. Uh, my own two cents worth is that uh, whether we believe Carlotta's account, which I believe is based on sources that she has cultivated over many, many years, or we question it, either way, the questions she raises deserve answers. And those answers will determine how the rest of the world will interact with Pakistan, especially, and how it will see Afghanistan. And ironically, it's not just Carlotta. There are others who are asking similar questions. Uh, the Canadian Minister for Immigration last week went very far uh, when he said that Pakistan should be considered a state sponsor of terrorism. It's not the first time. If you read uh, uh, the accounts, historic accounts, you will find that that question has been around for a long time. As a Pakistani, that worries me. And I wish that those at the helm in my country would actually try to answer the questions that people like Carlotta Gall have raised so that we do not come to a point where the hostility towards us totally supersedes any explanations that we can offer to people. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are open for discussion. Mr. Zeitlin, why don't you take the first question? Thank you. Right here at the f in the first row. Uh, my name is Arnold Zeitlin, and I opened up the first Associated Press Bureau in Pakistan in 1969, when things were not so different than they were today. Uh, two questions, really. Uh, one, in, in view of the uh, light security that surrounded uh, Osama bin Laden in 2011, uh, I've always thought that basically by then he was a marginal figure in Al-Qaeda, and that, in fact, the United States may have done Al-Qaeda a favor by getting rid of him. That's the first. The second is, uh, with the U.S. and NATO drawdown in Afghanistan, <coughs> and with the likelihood of having a very weak and divisive president uh, succeeding Karzai, uh, what sort of scenario do you believe will occur in so much as the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan will become even more fuzzy? Um, great questions. Uh, interestingly, I was just in Kabul. I'm going to answer the, the, the second question first. I was in Kabul last week, just before the election, um, and um, met someone very close to Dr. Abdullah, who's one of the front runners in the presidential campaign. And he pointed out, I said, oh, Pakistan will be very angry if a nor former Northern Alliance close aide of Ahmed Shah Massoud becomes president. And he said, on the contrary, Abdullah is on record as saying he will recognize the Duran line. And he thinks that that will solve a great, go a great deal to solving um, relations with Pakistan. 
He's also a for former foreign minister, and he, he strongly believes in improving relations <coughs> with Pakistan. That, I thought, was very interesting. I don't know how it will play out. I don't know how the election will play out. Ashraf Ghani is the other front runner, and I'm not sure what his stance is. As a, He's a Pashtun. I think it's very difficult. You can talk to this uh, professor um, of whether any Pashtun could actually recognize the Duran line, because that's a very a big issue for Pashtuns, and I think that's why Karzai could never do it. But um, um, I think uh, the drawdown is, doesn't have to be a disaster. I think everyone's weary of the troops. I think it really does, though, depend on how Pakistan reacts towards the new president of, Pak of Afghanistan. And I, I think that's it, the ball is in the court of Pakistan. Um, going to your first question, um, I, I think bin Laden, even though he was cloistered, even though we hadn't heard directly from him for a long time, I think he was still an incredibly important figurehead for al-Qaeda. I think um, I think he was being used by Pakistan for part, partly for those reasons, to use his influence on m other militant groups, whether Pakistani or foreign, uh, who were at large in in this, the region. And I think they they I, I think also there was a possibly the way to hide him and put him in protective custody, as it were, in in a safe house in Abbottabad was was also because. Pakistan did not be, want to be the, the traitor that gave up this this Arab Mujahid leader, um, however much he 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 was criticised by some. He he was revered by many, and I think the Pakistani leaders thought better to hide him away than to have to hand him over or to be responsible for his betrayal and death. So, so you want to hide in Pakistan? Would you go to Abbottabad? I think I would. Lovely town, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful <laughs> weather, and and he had a great view as well, which of course we British love, you know. Green. Can I, can green I quickly hills. just make one one point about the the Duran line? Um, no matter what uh, Dr. Abdullah thinks, uh, uh, the there's a long history and a long controversy about uh, the Duran line. Uh, I've written about it uh, in the recent past, uh, what I call the Pakistani uh, federally administered tribal areas. It is actually the federally abandoned tribal areas. Mm -hmm. uh, what we really need to have is a good open discussion about the Duran line and something along the lines uh, where uh, China mm -hmm. and Taiwan actually do work together despite having certain issues, certain revanchist, irredentist issues. And uh, some of you uh, uh, probably do remember the West Germany and East Germany. West Germany actually had a new Oost policy uh, and Afghanistan probably has to have something along the lines of a new Oost policy where actually the uh, problem is not shoved under the rug. It is recognized, but still the relations are maintained to the extent that uh, the, the irritants are removed, uh, border trades are happening, people are uh, going back and forth. And I think the Pashtun nationalists on the Pakistani side, they may be open to something along those lines. Yeah, although I must say that just for the record that uh, Dr. Abdullah is not the only Afghan who recognizes the Duran line. Afghanistan legally recognizes uh, the Pakistan-Afghanistan border as the Pakistan-Afghan border. Uh, and so it is legally actually an international border that both countries recognize and have recognized at least since 1948. May I just uh, no, no, no. clarify? Because I'm not talking about the Duran line. I'm right, talking I brought about that the up. fact that the Pakistani Taliban will have free access a safe haven in Afghanistan in the much, much the same way that the Afghan Taliban have free access to a safe haven in Pakistan. 
Dr. Ullman. Uh, an, ob an observation and then a question, and I, the question I'd also like Ambassador Hakani to uh, answer, please. Um, logically, it seems to me more than implausible that if any Pakistani official of seniority, such as General Kiani or General Pasha, knew about bin Laden's whereabouts, <coughs> they would have turned him in because they would have gotten a blank check from us that was worth the earth. And Ambassador Hakani's book, which talks about the Pakistanis believing that the Americans needed them more than we needed, than they needed us, would seem to support that. So it seems to me that if anybody of standing knew, uh, they would have had the earth in exchange for bin Laden. My question is this. Uh, in many ways, both Afghanistan and Pakistan are ticking time bombs. Uh, the withdrawal is going to go badly. Afghanistan is dependent upon lots of money, which is probably not going to be there, as <coughs> well as a very, very strong advisory and stay-behind force which is probably not going to be there either. And Pakistan has got so many ticking time bombs from 80 million kids who don't have jobs, Madrasa train, uh, an administration that's even more incompetent than the last, all sorts of economic problems. I wondered if you could both speculate on how you see the future a year from now, two years from now, in both countries, because it seems to me that none of those major problems have been addressed or are likely to be addressed. I'm just the moderator, so I'll let Carlotta answer. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned the longer you stay covering places like this, the, the more you learn not to predict, especially with Afghanistan. Um, um, and a great AP reporter, Kathy Gannon, says she never predicts any more on Afghanistan because she's always wrong. Although, um, So I, I, I don't know. But I, I, I fear that uh, things could go very become very difficult for Afghanistan for those reasons. I, I, with, with the military drawdown, you'll see a reduction of aid you'll see a reduction of attention and diplomatic pressure, all of which Afghanistan needs to survive. Um, the great worry is if they can't pay their soldiers and their police anymore, you will then start to have you know, people drifting off, forming militias, um, and you will lose that in fledgling state institutions that they, they do have now, and I hope they can hold that together. As for Pakistan, um, I'm very, very worried. Uh, the, the latest reporting that I had in the last year of, of writing the book um, and some of the stuff since is that the militant groups, uh, whether they're Punjabi or, or uh, TTP in, in the border areas, are dead set on a return to the battlefield after 2014 drawdown of foreign troops. So um, one, and I went to the Hakania Madrasa just last year and. And, you know, the, the, the people I met there said, you know, inshallah, we'll have the white flag of the Taliban flying in Kabul again. Um, you know, it sounds crazy, but some of them think and believe that they're certainly going to make a dead set at trying something. Um, and that's, that's very worrying for, the, for everyone. Um, I'll leave it at that. Can quickly address this. Uh, yes, uh, Pakistan could have been offered heaven and earth, but uh, their insecurities come from... Uh, and a presumed parity against India, and I don't think that the U.S. was actually putting up that offer, even if Osama was given. And some of this uh, jihadism actually is deeply entrenched in that paranoia against India. I don't think that it was that simple as handing over Osama bin Laden and actually getting a blank check. Yes, sir, right at the back. Mm -mm. 
some art strategy from, say, foundation. Uh, I would have to say that uh, I think, uh, Ms. Gall, you made a very interesting point, and I think the CIA and United States government should have known that even at the time George Bush made the decision to invade Afghanistan. Given that, it's not just Pakistan's guilt. Today's Pakistan, which was once part of India, where I was born, and so the Pakistanis should have looked at things the same way as we do, uh, is, is cast by United States. Pakistan's intelligence agencies have been trained by United States. So given that, those behaviors are very similar to what we have in the United States. So United States is as much guilty for having invaded Afghanistan. So your concept that wrong enemy, the United States did want to pick a wrong enemy. Would you comment on that? Ah, a mistake of choice. Hmm. Yeah, or a necessity. I think, it, I think it's very true that, that America made many mistakes, and I think one of them um, is not to know its enemy. Um, it's the first, it's first key thing, know your enemy more. And, and it's one of the reasons why we as journalists always argue we should go and interview uh, Taliban leaders. Uh, if I could, I would interview bin Laden, um, even though that might shock uh, people, because you have to understand your enemy and you have to know them. And, and I think I, I am sometimes mystified by Americans who, who, as you say, have had this long relationship with the ISI. Don't, why don't they know them better? One counterintelligence official said to me, yes, but the problem was when you're collaborating with, um, in other words, with the CIA collaborating with the ISI as partners, it means you don't spy on them or you don't uh, suspect them and you don't watch what they're up to. Um, I, I find that slightly odd because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, for years I worked in the Russian, in Russia, um, and that was my first uh, training at university, and I, I lived in Moscow as a reporter for five years. And, and there, so I'm used to seeing that, the, the American KGB, um, you know, system of watching each other and, and, and studying each other. And I always wonder why didn't we have that same sophistication between the CIA and the ISI? And I, and I think, I th well, I think it was because there was good collaboration on that level, and there are people who wanted to continue that. And still today, you do find in the administration, in government, there are the people who support keeping the relationship good um, and, and slightly ignoring the other things that are going wrong. Um, and I, I find that hard to understand. Um, and I think it's a failing, failing on the American side. I think you're right. I, th I think, by the way, that applies both ways. There are people in Pakistan who want to see the United States as an enemy, but the Pakistani establishment does not want that uh, to happen. And similarly, there are people in the United States who want to see Pakistan as an enemy, and there are people who say, why add to the list of enemies? Why not try and work around and maybe see each other as bad friends or bad former friends? rather than look at each other as enemies. And I think there is some merit to that argument in the context of the bigger picture uh, of international relations. Right in the front, and then I'll take, yeah, OK. I'll, I'll come to others. Uh, <clears throat> Hi, David Isby. Read your book. Very Thank good. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, and I just like to say, after you say not to know your enemy is your first mistake, 
makes me regret even more that there is no one good book in English on Pakistan intelligence and security. No, you wouldn't imagine it in 1944. There were lots of books on the Luftwaffe, but we do not have a good book in the ISI <laughs> and its uh, friends in English. But uh, Well, except for professors. Well, but it's book. not a history <laughs> of the institution. It deals I see, right. And, how, and of course, what we're seeing in Afghanistan is only, you know, the U.S. Strategic Air Command used to have a motto, right. peace is our profession, we only kill people as a sidelight. Uh, for the ISI, their profession is inside Pakistan and countering India as their profession. What we see in Afghanistan is a direct continuance of those two. Right. So with that in mind, uh, if you were to be prescriptive, what would you recommend with dealing with, pa you know, dealing with Pakistan? In Kabul, there's no shortage of people who say, given the uh, sanctions against Iran or a naval blockade of Karachi, uh, maximalist approaches are easy. Yes, in Kabul, uh, obviously, uh, that's probably uh, not what would, what would you recommend? Um, and by the way, keep the microphone in this area because I intend to <laughs> give the floor right after him. I, I, I am usually say to this that I'm, I'm just a journalist and I I'm not a policymaker and I don't know uh, what you would do. Um, but one thing I do believe, and um, which is why I read the book, is put it out there because I do feel there are a lot of people, um, when I talk to congressmen here, who don't know things um, that I, having lived there, feel should, is, is obvious and sh everyone should know. And it shows I get a bit too stuck into my subject, but I, I am shocked sometimes at the lack of knowledge, even among people, congressmen, other journalists who aren't specialists, but um, don't, don't quite understand the depth of things. And, and then on the, on the Pakistan side, I think there's an awful lot of Pakistani civ you know, civilian, ordinary people who don't know the half of what their government is doing. And so my feeling is, as, as I started with the WikiLeaks cable, we must have more information out there. And I would like to see uh, American officials talking more frankly about this. Um, you know, on the level, perhaps not, of, of Chris Alexander the other day saying, uh, they merited sanctions for terrorism, but for sponsoring terrorism, but but at least much more frankness of what about what we know is going on and and what Pakistan is up to. Um, if it was laid out clearer, I think it would be much easier with authority instead of with you know just a journalist being trying to 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 find sources with difficulty. I think I think that would that would. Call a spade a spade made things much, much easier to tackle. And eventually, I, th I see the way forward as the civilian government in Pakistan seizing back control of foreign policy and security policy and, and saying, enough, we, we're going to redirect our efforts in different ways and redirect our, our finances and the budget. Um, I think that's the way, and you'll only get that with people power, with people understanding what's at stake and what the country needs. It's a long shot. <laughs> well, um, um, an important thing in the book, of course, is Carlotta's own personal experience of being intimidated and physically uh, sort of uh, hurt uh, in the process of reporting. I don't know how many people remember and recall Salim Shahzad, the journalist who was killed, and we've never heard about him ever since, nowhere mm -hmm. do we talk about him, et cetera. So, so I think that the answer to your question as to why there is not a good book is that intelligence services that have an intimidation arm as well 
make it very difficult to write about them. I'm sure that there, uh, if, if, and, 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 and a good book is difficult to come by for that reason. They have their reasons. They have their, uh, they think they are protecting Pakistan. And some of us who are Pakistanis, as Pakistani as these people are, we think, no, they are harming Pakistan by being the way they are. But they don't want that debate in Pakistan. And then when foreigners talk about it, it only feeds the paranoia and the xenophobia that outsiders are trying to hurt our country. The lady right behind. Thank you. Uh, Mehreen Farooq from the World Organization for Resource Development and Education. Um, I wanted to thank you, Ambassador Haqqani, for putting together a very thought-provoking discussion today. Um, the organization that I work with, we recently conducted some research along 40, uh, sorry, 70 cities in the region, both on, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan, looking at civil society initiatives for peace building. And what we really found is that despite all the politics that are being played out in this region, that the people of both countries are longing and are working towards um, peace and stability. Um, my question, Carlotta, is um, I have not had an opportunity to read your book, and I really do look forward to it. Um, but I was wondering if your book sort of went beyond the Durand line to look at um, how both countries are being played as proxies by other states. As most of us in this room are probably quite familiar, um, for the past 30 years, uh, there's been extensive uh, foreign funding of extremist institutions in, in this region. Um, if you just even consider two months ago, the major attack uh, that took place in Qunar province really highlighted how some of this foreign funding has come directly from the Gulf states. So I was wondering whether your book sort of looked at uh, these factors as well. Thank you. I mean, I, I do look at it. Uh, one of the things that I found incredibly difficult to do is to track funding. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just a journalist. I, I don't have access to, to government um, systems of monitoring that. And I found very difficult interviewing people to get details on that. But it's partly because I'm also not in Washington where a lot of it, I think, is I'm, I'm always in the field. <coughs> Um, so I, I, I regret there's not enough on that because I think you're right, the financing is incredibly important and then being able to track who, I've never been able to get to the bottom of who in the Gulf is supporting these groups. You know, you always hear, oh, private institutions, the, the states are not doing it anymore, but somehow all this money's coming, whether by briefcase, by hawala. Um, I, I learned in, in places like Kohat, there's, there's big amounts being coming into the banks there, and the banks just don't ask questions because they're happy to have funds. But I still don't understand what institutions or what private individuals are spending, paying the money. So I, I think there's a whole other book there, and it's, it was just too difficult for me to go that step. We're also getting questions on Twitter, and, uh, uh, and I think they're being mailed to us as well, so I'll put some of them in as well. I will let Dr. Saki make a comment on some of the questions that have been asked. Yeah. And then I'm going to ask two or three of you to lay out your questions so that we can have answers together to try and save time and give more people an opportunity to uh, ask questions and make comments. Uh, two, two comments. Uh, one was about the uh, prescriptions. Uh, you have to have a diagnosis first. Um, as simple as that. It's a don't ask, don't, don't tell policy unless you actually recognize the problem that uh, whether it's a frenemy or enemy or uh, some sort of a, a problem ally, uh, you would not be able to come up with prescriptions and not necessarily punitive uh, actions. Uh, Pakistan has a jihadi drug habit. I say they are uh, hooked on jihad. So to wean them off is not going to be easy. The least you can do is stop rewarding them for bad behavior. 
that's the that's the minimum that can happen. The second part, uh, I wanted to address this question of the uh, financing that is coming through the gentleman that I talked about, Nasruddin Haqqani. Uh, he's one of the uh, Haqqani sons. Uh, he lived in Islamabad uh, in, in open um, five, six miles outside. He was their main money man traveling back and forth, most likely on Pakistani passports, going to Dubai, where uh, one of the Arab wives of this uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani lives. And they were setting up camps uh, at the pilgrimage time where uh, people would come into their tents and donate money. So there's a lot of uh, uh, black economy money that is going on. They have set up their own taxation in uh, Miramsha area. So uh, essentially, a parallel government is being run there. And it's not unknown. OK, two or three questions. Young man here in the middle and then on the right. And then we'll come to you, Mr. Boggs, in a second. Hello, thank you. Uh, Brandon Mendoza, former uh, USAID contractor in Afghanistan. Um, my question is also following along the discussions of the Durand line, which is that um, it seems to me, and you guys touched on this earlier, which is that um, we know for a long time the Pakistani government has supported uh, the Pashtun nationalists who, of course, do not recognize the Durand line. And I'm just curious as to is there logic that uh, – Keeping the state weak, even if it means that they do not recognize the Durand line in the long run, they feel is the right strategy. I, I've always under questioned why they aren't more aligned openly with the Northern Alliance, as going to what you said earlier. And then a second question was the consensus here in Washington always seems to be when we talk about not rewarding uh, Pakistan for bad behavior, which is that if the United States were to suddenly cut off aid or military cooperation as it did following the development of nuclear weapons, we would have this gulf and we would no longer be able to talk to each other. And that seems to be the consensus is that what's happened in the early 90s. And I, I wonder how could it possibly be any worse than it is? So I wonder if you all could comment on, on that issue. Second question right to the, yeah, the gentleman right next to you. Right. Yeah, uh, Joseph Lacandi with the King's College in New York City. Thank you, Ms. Gall, for your book and for your reporting there. And in the region. Um, just This is an uh, uninformed question, so bear with me. I don't understand why it is that the, the Pakistani security forces, the police, on the one hand, as we're told, they are battling terrorists in their own country. They're ba battling the Taliban and other radical forces, and they're dying in the process. Yeah. But then according to your account and other accounts, they're helping uh, the Taliban and their friends there in Afghanistan. It's, it seems such, such a self-defeating strategy, is there some ideological or religious reason to explain that? I just don't understand how you can be helping and killing. You know, just help me out there if you could. Welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a Pakistani. Hi, uh, Ken Meyercourt, World Docs. Uh, I'm of the school that believes that Osama bin Laden uh, died in the Tora Bora Mountains of Afghanistan mm. in 2001 mm. and not in a compound in Abbottabad in 2011. Uh, so I was intrigued by your information that the Pakistanis had been monitoring his presence in Abbottabad. I wonder if you could uh, clarify what your source on that was and how much faith you put in that information. And in this regard, could I ask, have you tried to interview the wives? Are we done? Yeah, go. I would together. love to interview the wives, but no. Um, we they unfortunately were taken immediately into ISI custody, and no one got uh, to see them at all except 
ISI and I think some American officials eventually. And now they've all returned to Saudi Arabia and I haven't tried to, to go and see them there. But um, you're right, there's a great tale there to be told. Um, I, I have several sightings in the book, particularly one militant commander who, uh, who told me he saw bin Laden twice, um, you know, once after 9-11, but he'd met him before, so he, he recognized him, he greeted him, um, I think that was in about 2003, in the mountains of North Waziristan. Um, so I believe he survived Tora Bora, but um, that you knew that already. Um, the most interesting question is is why uh, yeah why are Pakistan in some places fighting the militants and dying? I mean we know military and police are dying. Their their uh, headquarters are getting attacked. They're being ambushed. Uh, there was one time even um, when they they have to take their well I think still now they have to take their uniform off if they want to go downtown in Peshawar, the military because they're targets in their own country. Um, and yet, uh, they, as I show, are supporting these militant groups and are cooperating with them. And as the complaint is often from, from Westerners, their level of m meetings is so high level and so detailed that it's more than just information gathering or, um, in order to, you know, for intelligence. It's, it's actually cooperation. They have some of these leaders in Camp Hamza, which is the ISI headquarters that runs the Afghan desk in Ralpindi. Uh, these men come, people like Nasiruddin Haqqani would, would visit um, ISI headquarters. Um, so the level of collaboration with these militant leaders uh, is very high. So what, are, what is going on? My, my feeling is some of the, and I show this a bit in the book, uh, some of the the militant, pro these, these proxy groups have always been fostered by the ISI. They have <coughs> always been used um, and controlled. And sometimes some of them get out of control. And then either they're slapped down, assassinated. I'd love to have a chat about who killed Nasiruddin Haqqani, because I suspect it was the Pakistani secret services or, or possibly Americans. I don't know. But uh, so sometimes they slap them down or they control, and sometimes they arrest them and they torture them. And one of the most militant leaders, Ilyas Kashmiri, who's, caused, uh, who's been behind a lot of these attacks inside Pakistan, he was taken in um, by the ISI with his father, as according to my sources, and tortured in the same room, both of them naked, which you can imagine is a horrendous thing for, for anyone, but for particularly for for Muslims, and um, he became so angry that then he turned against his former handlers, and he had been a special forces, highly trained, um, you know, uh, operative, and so of course he was a deadly, deadly enemy when he turned against the state. So um, that was an effort to control him, to make him obey, and it actually backfired. So I think you've got a lot of that. Um, and then you've got um, Al-Qaeda really meddling and causing problems. You know, we know Al-Qaeda attacked Musharraf, even twice nearly killed him, even at the time when I know, I show that Musharraf was uh, saying we must be allowed to continue our support of the proxy, our proxy militant groups. So um, it, it's been a mixed bag. And what I try and show is that what's been fatal is 
Pakistan's uh, playing both, trying to play both sides because you just cannot do that because of this this cross fertilization because of the danger of people turning against you. You 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 can't meddle in that way with something so dangerous. Dr. Taki, I would like you to take the young man's question about the Durand line and how you know the sentiment of like questionable nationalism on both sides is concerned. Sure. Uh, the uh, the mainstream Pashtun nationalist parties in Pakistan, there's there's two Pashtun Khwamili Awami Party and Awami National Party who participate in the parliamentary elections and uh, de facto they accept the two state solution for uh, the Pashtun issue and they're in Pakistani parliament but off the record uh, a lot of them do not believe uh, that the Duran line is the permanent border and they do seek uh, a, a permanent solution more durable solution even if it is a token acknowledgement that uh, when I was a kid growing up uh, crossing the Turkham border Mr. Jinnah's quotation was right up top. It said uh, the people living on each side of this border are one people and no power in the world can divide them. And that was taken down during the Zia era. Uh, so there, there's, there's a lot to be discussed, but as I said earlier on, a, a policy has to be made where you actually do not allow the Duran line to create uh, what is called shatter zones, where these, these, these bad groups and unruly groups survive. And I think Pakistan uses that as a policy to create these shatter zones. And uh, just to segue into that question, why they keep doing it, cost of doing business. This is the overheads uh, uh, that, that Pakistan incurs in terms of, of doing this. As uh, uh, Professor Barney Rubin had once said, ISI is only loyal to the ISI. And uh, that's uh, their um, old modus uh, operandi. Uh, you know, you had Kashmiri militants, they got out of hand, they created another batch. Uh, remember the Afghan Mujahideen, they wanted to keep them divided into seven groups, they got out of hand. You had Taliban. Taliban getting out of hand, you have good Taliban. So, you know, uh, that goes back to that chaos theory. To, to solve a chaotic problem, they come up with a bigger chaos. Okay, uh, last round of questions, and then I'll have one final question, and we'll try and then give Carlotta an opportunity to sign books for you and give all of you an opportunity to buy and really read the book. The gentleman right here in the front, then right behind him. And then one more questioner. If somebody is really anxious to ask a question, raise your hand now. Okay, so we'll come to that. Make your questions brief, please. You're trying to save some time. Yes, I'll be very brief on two observations and a quick question. First observation, the ISI is a military organization. Its culture is very different from the CIA or the KGB. Its culture is more similar to the GRU in the old Soviet Union. Second observation, uh, the Ayn Amir himself, Abdul Rahman. You didn't introduce yourself. Would you introduce me? <laughs> uh, I'm Rajesh Kedi, and I've done some writing, and I happen to be a friend of Hussein's as well. <laughs> uh, so uh, the second, uh, uh, Sheikh Abdul Rahman, uh, the Ayn Amir himself, uh, said that the Duran line was not permanent. It would depend upon the Afghan people. So all along, it's, uh, it's you know, permanency has been in question. Uh, my question, of course, uh, being from India, is how does India, how is India impacted post-2015 by the AFPAC region? Thank you. And Ask uh, the just mic just behind quickly, you, uh, and we'll come to these three questions. Yes, you. okay. Um, Carlotta, you were in... Introduction first. Tony Drexler, uh, international health consultant. I spent about eight years in Pakistan, 90s, late 90s. And then again, 
early 2000s and spent some time in Afghanistan. Um, and my question really is, you spent 12 years there, right? Yeah. Um, I wonder if you'd speak a little bit about the Islamization of Pakistan that you observed, and particularly uh, perhaps the growth of the Afghan Taliban and the increasing, um, I guess, uh, absorption of some of that ethic into Pakistan society, which did not really exist when I was there. Um, and then secondly, um, when I was there, I, I was observing the, I guess, the separation between the ISI and the military mm -hmm. and the compartmentalization where uh, the ISI perhaps being, uh, the military being at least partially a modernizing force and then gradually moving towards a more Islamic thrust. Um, the gentleman right in the middle. My name is Badrasen Vikram, and my parents were refugees from Pakistan to India. Uh, my question is, what role, in your opinion, can the new Indian government play in a constructive manner That's uh, going the forward? That's the same question as Mr. Kalyan, right? And then the final two questions from Bob Box right there, and Ms. Paranaz Pahani right there. Um, I'm Robert Boggs from the Near East South Asia Center, um, and I, you may have answered this question in your book, but so forgive me. Um, I think there's plenty of evidence, uh, I'm speaking of the ISI, that various divisions within ISI follow different, uh, have different policy goals and are sometimes at loggerheads with one another, so they, they're not coordinated uh, horizontally. Do you think that same segmentation could occur vertically, such that the kinds of cooperation we all know occurred at the local level between ISI agents and local uh, jihadis might not actually be fully reported up the line so that someone like, uh, well, a ISI chief could honestly say that he doesn't really know everything that's going on. We've seen that same phenomenon elsewhere, including the United States. And the last question, the young lady right here. Um, my question for um, Ambassador Hakani and Carlotta Gohl and Dr. Taki is this. Um, one of the things that one always noticed in Pakistan, firstly, I want to correct. We've been talking about Pakistan all along to get today. We're actually talking about the Pakistan military and the ISI, which has de facto taken over the state of Pakistan because of very weak civilian governments. My question is this, um, sitting here in Washington, why throughout this time that we're talking about, when American diplomats, government officials and generals would go to Islamabad, they would always go and see <coughs> the head of the ISI first and the army chief first, and then come and see the president and the prime minister. So don't you think that on one hand, they have these troops in Afghanistan, they're pouring in aid, the war on terror, the hunt for bin Laden, but on the other hand, they help keep the civilian governments weak. So that's my question. Do you agree with what I'm saying? Okay. So these are your, this is your opportunity, both Carlotta and Dr. Taki, 
for final comments. And Carlotta, remember the pitch you make right now is going to make people buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> They're quite disparate questions, aren't they? Are there any yes, that you want are. to Just jump in on? Kind of connect them. Um, Two of them are about India. Do you think? Any yeah, I'm India not an on? expert on India, so. Um, but I, I do know that the bit that India has been helping um, Afghanistan, um, both on humanitarian assistance, which I think is, is key. They, they feed, for example, they give all the, nutri um, you know, the nutritious biscuits to school children through the whole country. Vital to keep that going. Um, the, they're also offering military aid and training. And that, of course, I think is problematic. And I think I would beg that India be very wise in its efforts to help Afghanistan. Of course it wants to help, and it w of course it wants good relations, but you must think of how that goes down in Pakistan and the backlash. So uh, India's building of a road from from Gardez to Host, which is right up to the Pakistani border, was just really unwise. And it was USAID that gave the contract, which was also stupid. <laughs> and and Afghan, you know, the Afghan government actually didn't want it, but they didn't have a say because it was a deal between the Indian government and USAID. You know, that that was just unnecessary. Um, you know, and, and just a red rag to Pakistan. So I would ask for some definitely continued assistance and, and, and support, but but judicious um, decision making. Um, the Islamization of Pakistan was uh, is is just something that unbelievably sad that I've seen because, uh, as a young student, I travelled around as a backpacker over a lot of Pakistan and had a wonderful time and always you know um, really fantastic reception. And then I went to one of the same areas again um, in Malakand um, as a reporter with a with a friend and we w went to see a a cleric from TNSM, which is the, one of these these groups. And he, you know, after saying, although he said yes, when we got there, he refused to see me as a woman. And I wasn't allowed even into the compound because um, he had a house with a madrasa, all part of the same compound. So I had to sit in the car outside. And my journalist colleague went in um, with it and took a tape recorder. And the, the driver, we actually had two cars, so the drivers got hungry and went off to the bazaar to get some nice chapli kebab. So I was sitting reading in the car, and the, the boys came out of the madrasa. And they were all, um, I would say they were 10, 12, 13. And they saw this foreign woman sitting in the car, and it was really quite scary. They all crammed around the car, and they rocked it to the point that I thought it was nearly going to turn over. And I just thought, Never before would have Pakistani boys behaved like that, and and they s they obviously saw me as a sort of demon, you know. Um, it, and and it was only when someone came around the corner that I mean I was about to climb into the front seat and start the car, but it, you know it was actually very very aggressive, and they were they were young teenagers, so that's the level of. And so what, you think what are they being taught in the madrasa that they behave like that? Um, so that that's my little story on that. Um, um, RS question about US policy. Yeah. Um, which was what? To keep the. To keep. Um, that, that American policy enhances and strengthens the ISI's role in Pakistan's domestic politics and the military rather than enabling Pakistan to find its own free way forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, the, the worst thing has been the funding, especially under the Bush administration, that just went into the pot and was was so lavishly given to the military 
in order to do operations in the border areas, but uh, was just, you know, just a carte blanche for the military and to, to, um, to get stronger and stronger, and the civilian government didn't. But, but I do think it's difficult when, the, when the, um, the administration officials come over to Pakistan and they, they have a list of things they want done, and um, they go, they should, of course, go to the civilian government first. They should insist on the protocol being correct. Um, but they, they typically, uh, with Americans, this happens. They want to get stuff done, so they go to the man who they think can call the shots and get things done. So, um, Which is usually the army chief. Army chief, yeah. Um, and it's very unfortunate, obviously, with Musharraf, it was the same person. So they got used to that, and then I think uh, they just continued. But um, I think that was a big mistake, to keep going to Kiani and, and, and believing they could change his mind and actually not really boosting uh, the, the democratic government. Um, Dr. Taki, final comments, responses? Um, sure. Uh, quick uh, dovetailing into the same. Uh, should, uh, basically, you, you get what you pay for. You keep dealing with uh, the same people over and over again, uh, taking the easy route out. Politics is difficult. Uh, negotiations are dif difficult. Diplomacy is uh, the art of making things possible. Military solutions, on the other hand, are zero-sum solutions that the Pakistani uh, military establishment has had for Afghanistan. And one thing I would be remiss not to mention is uh, the, the army uh, establishment actually existing almost like a rentier state, living off of the money that they get from other places. $1.5 billion received into Pakistani coffers from Saudi Arabia, no questions asked uh, on a personal guarantee. Uh, where is that money going, and what kind of curriculum is actually that buying? And that uh, may help explain some of the Islamism that we see on the streets of Rawalpindi and Islamabad. It's, uh, these are changed cities. I grew up in Peshawar in the 1970s. It used to be a pretty laid-back city, and you could get around on a bike uh, without any problem. Uh, women, too. And uh, that is not something uh, which is possible now. So uh, people have to think long and hard, whether it is the easy way uh, that we have to take out or not. I really want to thank uh, Carlotta for actually putting together the case for the Afghan people, the victims who have suffered through this all uh, over the last uh, 30, 40 years. I remember the day uh, the first Afghan Muhajir uh, actually pitched a tent right in our backyard in Peshawar. Mm. Uh, so it is really uh, with a warm heart that I thank you. Thank you. Well, let me just uh, wind up the discussion. As a Pakistani, addressing especially those Pakistanis who are in the audience and who are watching this uh, on live, uh, the live uh, webcast, uh, we as Pakistanis, of course, always get disturbed when others say things that we see as critical of our country. Uh, but there are certain facts we should always recall. Uh, in 1947, what is today Pakistan had a literacy rate of 16%. What is today India had a literacy rate of 18%. Today India's literacy rate is 75%. Ours is hovering around 55%. 42% of our school-going age children do not go to school. Our spending on education is 1.2% of GDP. Compare that with, say, for example, 10% of GDP in South Korea. Uh, we now have the lowest school enrollment in our region. Bangladesh, which came out of Pakistan, has a 90% plus school enrollment. India, out of which Pakistan came out, also has a 90% plus enrollment rate. Something is definitely wrong. We have made some wrong decisions. And as a Pakistani, even if then I do not agree with Dr. Taki or Carlotta or others on specifics, I do agree with one thing. When somebody else tells you your house is on fire, it's always a good idea.
to pay some attention to that. Thank you all very much. And now for the book signing.